Let us bow in prayer. Father, as we come to this, your word, we just ask again that you would be present with us through your spirit, that you would teach our hearts, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would enrich our trust and our faith to your praise and to your eternal glory. In his name, amen. If the church, for argument's sake, asks you to articulate what it ought to believe, uh, and that's already been done, but if you were in that position, where would you begin? Would you begin by reading books on philosophy that no one can understand, not even those who write them? Would you believe, would you write articles of faith based on what you observe in, the, in nature? Or would you just take thoughts out of your own head? All the creeds of the Reformation, including our own uh, Westminster Confession, but the Baptist Confession of 1689, uh, the Heidelberg Confession as well, they all begin uh, not with God or Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit or eternity or a, a chapter on the church. That's not where they begin. They all begin by stating where it is they get their principles. That is, the first chapter in the Westminster Confession is a chapter that deals with the word of God and what it is. Now I want to bring us back to that point this morning just for a few minutes. And I want us to consider what the book is. This book that we claim to read and obey. First of all, I want to look at the necessity of the book. Why is it that we actually need it? When our society says, no, it's a lot of rot, we can get on fine without it, we don't need God, we don't need the church, let us just get on with life. The second thing is, what is the nature of the book? That is, what is the self-revelation of the scripture? What does it say about itself? And thirdly, what is the purpose of it? First of all, the necessity of the book. In our reading in Corinthians, and we'll come back to, to that shortly, uh, it spoke there that God reveals himself to us through his spirit. So the question arises, how is God, how, sorry, how is God, how has God revealed himself to humanity? And Psalm 19 that uh, Steve read earlier on speaks to that. Let me just touch on it for a few moments. The first six verses uh, describe uh, a general revelation of God himself uh, or a natural revelation. And from verse 7 to, to the end of the psalm, it speaks of a particular or a special revelation. That is the word of God written. But the general revelation is nature itself, the created order. Listen to it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their lying goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, I've never had a tree speak to me or an elephant speak to me. But is that what this is saying? We all marvel when we go to the zoo or we see wildlife film on the television. How does it speak to you? Does it make your heart or your mind, I should say, ponder the diversity and even the majesty? Who cannot be impressed by seeing a massive African elephant in anger? Huge animals. Who cannot be impressed by seeing blue whales in the ocean? Do they not speak to us? Plenty of people believe that the stars speak to them. (laughs) Day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. The firmament shows his handiwork. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The stars don't speak, do they? They either shine or they fall out of the sky. And yet if we ponder them, our minds are taken back. How did it all begin? That is God speaking through this natural revelation. When we walk in our gardens and we admire a beautiful flower, does it not speak to us? We smell the beautiful perfume. We see its intricate design and its colours. Is it just evolution at work? An arbitrary and random mixture of genetics at work? Is that the end? Or do these things speak to us just as the scripture said? In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom going out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit is to the other. There is nothing hidden from its heat. We've got winter coming on and... uh, It was really cold this morning. But the Bible says that uh, there's nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. And yet ice forms. Science tells us, I could never get my head around that, but science tells us that even in the coldest temperature on earth, there is heat. It's just a degree of how much heat there is. God's natural revelation of himself. Let me go to Romans chapter 1. 
Just let me read that to you just for a second. It comes to my, it comes to my mind as a, as a basic principle of where we're at with this. Uh, from verse 16, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And here it is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. What do men do with it? They suppress the truth. That is, they, they hold it down so that it can't be seen. And that's exactly what's going on in our world today. We're slowly being, on one hand, our uh, uh, Islam is, we're slowly being Islamized in Western nations. The truth is being held down and forced down. On the other hand, we've got our own governments establishing policies that restrict the Christian gospel and its message of life and grace. Men hold down the truth of God, though it is obvious and revealed in uh, Revelation of the word of God. In Romans chapter 2, there's a man there with a conscience. Verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing. So here's somebody who's looking at the world around them and they say, no, there is no God and yet what they observe in nature, in the general revelation, within the created order itself, convicts them that there is something wrong and something missing in their lives. People who deny the existence of God in the first instance have got a problem with their conscience. The same as us all. It's human, part of the human psyche, it's part of the human makeup. For as in Adam, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, there is something missing. God has shunned. On one hand, He shut us out of the Garden of Eden, that is, out of His presence. But on the other hand, he's revealed something, revealed his majesty and his glory in the first instance through the order of creation itself. But there is another way in which God has revealed himself, and that is again seen in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, that is, the word of God is perfect converting the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple the statutes of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart see the testimony the statutes 
And then we've got uh, the commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightening. All of these words are synonymous with the word of God. When we speak of the word of God, we're talking about the testimony of the Lord. We're talking about the statutes of the Lord. We're talking about the commandments of the Lord. It's his word that cleanses us and changes us into his likeness for eternity. And this is the special revelation, and we have it from Genesis to Revelation in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. General revelation is a clear revelation of the presence and the existence of Almighty God. But the word of God that we have written is that which is special and which, even though clear, is not the easiest to grapple with. Man has no excuse, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1. Man has no excuse. He cannot go to uh, his grave and then stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I never knew you. The Lord can say something like, didn't you smell the flower? Didn't you ever look at the night sky? Didn't you ever wonder how it all came to be? Nor will we be able to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ growing up in the church. Say, Lord, I went to church all my life. Did you know me? Because I don't know you. Didn't you read the word of God? Didn't you listen to the sermons? Didn't you hear the word of God being read? You have to know me. The word of God is necessary. It's the only way that we can know God. It's the only way that we can know how it is that we are to come to God and to have eternal rest and salvation. The nature of the book. <clears throat> Turn to Second Timothy chapter 3. And this is a familiar passage to us, no doubt. Verse 14 through 17. <clears throat> and the Apostle Paul's writing to Timothy. And he says to Timothy, Timothy... You must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of. That is, you've come to to realise that these things are true. You've come to salvation. You've had a conversion experience. Uh, He's learned them from his grandmother and his mother. And uh, he's become assured of them. That is, he's come to genuine saving faith. You must continue in those things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them. You can turn back to chapter 1 and verse 5 to find who. It's his mother and grandmother. Verse 15, And that from childhood you, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Why can they 
How is it that they can make you wise to salvation? Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there are two purposes in the scripture. In the substance of scripture, there are two basic reasons for it, two purposes. First of all, it's to make us wise to salvation And secondly, to fit us for life and for eternity. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, young people, the word righteousness is a big heavy word, isn't it? We don't hear it very often. But it just means to be Christ-like. Christ is right with God, he, that is to say, he kept the law, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, kept them absolutely perfectly. He stood in our place and kept them. And if we are to be righteous, that's what it's saying. It's the Bible, the Word of God is inspired by God uh, for instruction in being Christ-like. When we hear the word inspired, we think of the idea of taking something in and uh, if we're thinking of somebody playing the piano, we say, boy, they can play in an inspired way. We think they're taking in something and it's coming out through their fingers and through their music. But that's not the understanding. It simply means to be breathed out. And God breathed out his message to all mankind through those who wrote the scriptures without interfering with the character and the nature of the person themselves. So that's the first thing. Uh, There are two ways in which um, the Bible reveals itself. The first uh, there is simply that uh, all scripture is given by God. That's the nature of it. And we'll come to the purpose in a little time. Again, we see this principle in 2 Peter Second Peter chapter 1, <clears throat> from verse 16, where Peter says, We did not follow, that is the apostles, did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, what's he talking about? Back in Luke chapter 9, um, there is the... Uh, the um, the account of what we call the transfiguration where uh, Jesus takes Peter and John and James I think uh, up onto a hill in order to pray together and as Jesus starts to pray and lead them he's transfigured his robes become brilliant white and his face changes and then all of a sudden uh, James and John and um, and Peter see Christ uh, through this vision of heaven opening and here is this vision of Christ in all his resurrection glory speaking with Elijah and Moses and the voice of God comes to them and said this is my son hear him that's what Peter's talking about here in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. That's the account. Um, 
We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Then he goes on and he says this, for he, re, for he received from God the Father honour and glory when such a voice came from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the voice they heard. So he's talking about that account. Verse 18, we heard the voice which came from heaven and we, uh, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, the word holy needs to be understood not as a, something sacred or perfect, but just a, a place that God used to be holy is to be set aside for God's purposes. We were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed of as light that shines in, the, in a dark place. Peter could have, in this account, gone along to the people in the, the early church, and it might have been recorded here for us today. Peter's had this great vision and we can't deny it. It's recorded there in scripture and it must have been a wonderful experience for Peter. Peter doesn't say to us here, look, if you're weak in your faith and you're down a little bit and you're unsure about eternity and all the rest of it, he said, go out and seek this vision that I've had. It'll change your life. He doesn't do that. Um, <clears throat> I might say to you, um, for argument's sake, that coming up here this morning and Heather and I were driving along the road and we had this startling, brilliant light and we had this vision of Christ. You ought to go out and get it. Have that same experience. What's your reaction to that? Would you want it? Would you believe me? I wouldn't believe me. That's why, precisely why Peter doesn't say you have to have the same experience. Peter says, I've got something far better. Listen to it. <clears throat> so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture <clears throat> is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men, men set aside for the purposes of God, of God, men of God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now I can come to you and say, I've had all of these visions and all of these spiritual experiences, and they're wonderful, you should desire them. Am I being biblical? No, I'm not. Each and every one of us is directed back here to this word of God. Precisely because any vision I've had, and I haven't had any, I can't prove it. I can't prove its truthfulness any more than you can. But I can prove the text of Scripture. Because it is in the word of God written. And that's the nature of the book. The nature of the Bible is that it is the word of God because it's breathed out by God through men moved and borne along by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> well, we looked at Timothy and the purposes there of 
of um, the scripture are that <clears throat> it is to make us wise to salvation and it is to equip us uh, for service, for the service of Jesus Christ. But you see, if we don't read it, if we don't read it, how can we be equipped? If we don't hear it, how can we be equipped to serve Christ? And if we don't take any notice of it, where are we with our faith? Can we say with confidence, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and yes, I know that eternity awaits me. But if you can't say particularly eternity awaits me, if you're not sure, why not? Do you not trust this, the word of God written and its promises? Science has been trying for hundreds of years to prove uh, where life came from. The United States has got an enormous debt that it's on the brink of not being able to pay at the moment. And you know where it's spending millions and millions and millions of dollars sending space vehicles into space to try and find specks of life on Mars and far off places to prove that ostensibly at least that God doesn't exist. Is it any wonder that our world's in a mess? Western society's been throwing God aside for years and in some places the so-called Christian churches even done away with God. They've reinterpreted him to be something else completely different. Go to the Uniting Church in the uh, corner of Russell and Collins Street. The church packed, crowded, a thousand people, I think it'll see. They're every, they're every Sunday morning, but they're not hearing this. Martin Luther wrote... of the New Testament people they would go up to Jerusalem and when they went to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to see Jesus or something of him or hear of him they went to the cradle Jerusalem, Luther understood Jerusalem to be the cradle in which Christ could be seen But he said, today we can't go to Jerusalem because Christ is not there. Where do we find him? He said, well, in the cradle that is the word of God written. Do you know salvation in Jesus Christ? Do you know the peace of it that passes all human understanding and comprehension? A faith and a belief that cannot be explained by science. Any more than science will ever explain creation. It never will. Hebrews chapter 11. It is by faith that we believe 
that the worlds were created. It's not by scientific fact. Let me finish by taking you to Luke 24, verse 25, 27. Uh, Two people walking along the road towards the village of Emmaus from Jerusalem. And a third figure joins them. And they were talking, the two figures that were walking along on their own were talking about the events of the crucifixion, the trial of Jesus and the crucifixion. And they were completely uh, devastated that what they had believed had been crushed and taken away from them. They just didn't quite get it. And this third figure uh, comes along. Uh, You can read the account from verse 13, but we'll go to verse 25. (coughs) And in verse 17, this third figure asks them what it is that they're talking about. And they explain to him, and they don't recognise Jesus Christ. He's walking along in the dust and the road with them. And he says in verse 25 and 26 and 27, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. How many people saw Jesus Christ when he was on earth? Thousands? Perhaps hundreds of thousands. Jesus doesn't say to these fellows, look, you saw me in Jerusalem, here I am. He says, why don't you believe what is written? O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory... Jesus is saying to these two guys that in the Old Testament, the things that they're in grief over were prophesied in the Old Testament. Why don't you understand it? Why don't you read it? Why don't you trust it? And what's he do? Verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, he didn't have the New Testament, so he's picking up the Old Testament and he's opening it up to them and explaining from Genesis 1.1 to the last verse in the Old Testament, beginning at Moses, these are the first five books, and the prophets, that's everything else. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Today it's a popular notion that we don't need the Old Testament because it doesn't speak of Christ. But what did Jesus just do? He opened the scriptures, the Old Testament, and said, here I am. Do you believe it? Do you know the peace of God through the word of God that passes all understanding? Amen.